Inner Armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, Doc, here we are again sitting outside. Yeah, I love this. Connecting with nature, right? I know. It's exactly what you tell everybody that we need to do. You know, we've been working on this book together and I was going through the draft last night and there's this section where we talk about how we've moved indoors. Yeah. Like our whole life has moved indoors and we become cut off from the environment. We were designed to be outdoors. And then of course we do these, so much of our work is sitting indoors in front of computers and like that. So it's really cool to sit outside here with the trees and everything else. And now one of the downsides is occasionally Occasionally, a mower may run yes. or whatever, but those are the those are the sounds of happiness, right? Yes, we started a little bit later while we were waiting for the guy to finish his lawn <laughs> next door. It's all good. So today we're going to drill down, Doc, a little bit on the connection between the autonomic nervous system and what we've been calling the four horsemen of mental health, mm-hmm. uh, which are anxiety, depression, PTSD, and substance abuse. Because those are the four major or most prevalent mental health disorders in the United States. Yeah, so when we look at those things, it's easy to see them kind of in a vacuum, not related to each other, disconnected. But they're actually downstream type things. And we talk about this a lot, downstream and upstream. But they're downstream indications of something that's off upstream, something that's off in the nervous system, off physiologically. And I mean, even things that seem unrelated, like my heart and PTSD or my heart and anxiety, especially heart and depression. And we've always known historically that those are connected, but a lot of times we think it's connected because while the person's been depressed, they're going to have cardiovascular disease because of the depression. But there's a lot of interesting things out there that lately that is showing us that could it be the heart problem that actually causes the depression? I was looking at a study the other day, I think from National Institutes of Health, that showed I think it was 48%. I think it was that, so don't quote me on that. But I think it was a 48% connection between heart disease and depression. And they were saying that the likelihood of heart disease, that depression is just as big a contributor to heart disease as obesity or smoking. Absolutely. So you can say, hey, I don't smoke and I don't drink and, I'm, and I stay physically fit, but your depression is just as big of a driver. Yes. And the inverse, that because you have an issue with how your heart's working physiologically, you're going to be set up for depression. And so most of the time, everybody's thinking the one direction, that it's unidirectionally, but it's actually bidirectionally that when somebody has very low inner beat interval in the heart, which can happen way before you ever have the depression, that they likely will start to experience depression. So it's very interesting when you do intervention for depression, there are studies where people have worked on just improving inner beat interval in the heart and heart rate variability, not even doing therapy, counseling, just working cardiovascularly on these things and watching the depression lift better than if you were using counseling or medication. 
It's crazy. Yeah, it is. This analogy is just occurring to me as a metaphor while we're talking. And, you know, I don't know if it's a good one or not, but like you talk about this bi-directional nature, right? So the brain and the autonomic nervous system affects mental states, but also mental states drive the ANS. And so we keep talking about downstream, upstream, but in some ways it's almost like you damned the stream, right? You know, you blocked the stream and now the water is going to back up. And so when you have certain kind of things that are driven downstream, but then those themselves, so the ANS causes anxiety, for example, and then that anxiety begins to back up and drive the ANS and the brain itself physiologically. Yeah, it creates this loop, you know, and anybody who's had a panic attack or had a situation where they thought they were having a a heart attack and they go to the emergency room. I mean, this is among the most common visitors of the emergency room. I'm having a heart attack and they say, you're having a panic attack because it feels the same thing. But you can create this, this loop of my heart's going faster, maybe because I'm not breathing correctly and some other things. And then psychologically you connect to that and you say, I must be anxious, you know? And so if they, the two, you cannot look at these things in silos. They're completely connected. That, that National Institute of Health, I think it was study that I was looking at the other day, also talked about things like respiratory disease, like COPD as drivers. Yeah. So basically if you, if you don't sleep well, you don't breathe well, now your, your brain is starved for oxygen, which drives depression. Right. Well, let's just stop for a second and kind of frame this whole mm-hmm. thing with a little bit of discussion of the anatomy and physiology of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Let me kind of lay this out and doc, you, you comment on this as, as it makes sense. But if you think about the brain as an onion with layers, mm-hmm. right? You have at the center of the onion, whatever you call the center of an onion, a pit, the onion pit or whatever it is, right? <laughs> the core. The maybe. core, yeah. maybe, right? Well, you have these outer layers. Mm-hmm. And as you go all the way into the center, if the brain is like an onion, at the center are the parts that control the most vital functions to keep the body alive. Mm-hmm. Protective so, mechanisms. Protective mechanisms. Yeah. So, you, you know, the body needs air. It needs to keep the blood flowing. It needs to r- regulate temperature. And so you get down into that brain stem or that brain core in the middle. And then, then the outer layers of the onion or the higher layers of the onion are where you have thinking and processing and all that kind of stuff. But at that core, that's where a lot of the involuntary stuff in your brain, on your body is regulated. And it's sort of, in a sense, like I suppose the way God designed our bodies and our brains, it protects that core, right? Yeah. Now in there, there's two kind of parts that drive the ANS. There's the medulla oblongata and the amygdala, and they're right next to each other. Mm -hmm. The medulla oblongata, it tries to maintain homeostasis in the body. So it controls like respiration, pulse, thermoregulation, stuff like that. It's sort of, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I remember once going to, I think it was in Chicago, the Science Museum, and they have an old German U-boat submarine yeah, there and yeah. you get to go have you ever been in that yeah it's so cool <laughs> it's so cool but you go into the control room you remember and it has like hundreds of these pipes with all these valves on them like i mean honestly it feels like there's 200 of these valves and there's it's all and so these guys is really complicated and when they would want to do anything with the sub you have to turn a little more of this valve and a little more of this a little more of this and that's sort of maintaining it well, like that like in that that center that medulla oblongata in there what you've got is all of these nerves that run right out of the cranium, right down into the spinal column, 
And what they do is they're like those pipes with those valves mm-hmm. and they say, you know, control the temperature of your body, control the respiration of your body, control the pulse rate of your body, right? They're constantly sort of managing that. And then you've got this other little part right next to it, the amygdala. And it's like the sub-captain that is looking through the periscope. And he's looking through the periscope and he sees another ship. And he goes, oh my gosh, you know, threat or opportunity. And then he yells, rah, 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 rah. And then the guys start turning the valves. So your amygdala is sort of scanning all the time. And it's saying, oh, look, there's a bear over there. And you're trying to remember, like, are the black bears or the brown bears the bad ones? Right? Yeah. You know? And it's like, oh, I, I think it's a brown bear. So, you know, ooga, ooga. And he tells the guys, dive, dive, dive. And then what that does is it sends down this thing, the HPA axis down to what, right? Your, your adrenal glands that say, man, flood, flood the system. With adrenaline. Get, with yeah. adrenaline to give you power, cortisol and all that. So that's a little bit like how this ANS works, but all of that then plays out in our physiological and thus our mental state. And that's where we get the four horsemen. You want to talk about how that system affects the four horsemen, the anxiety, depression, PTSD, and substance abuse. Yeah. And I'll add one more to it is right next to the amygdala, you have the hippocampus. Yep. And the hippocampus is storing all your memory. I mean, it's not the only place that memory consolidation happens, but there's a huge part of it that's happening there. And because the amygdala has so much to do with emotion and you have this memory center right next to it, that's how you do connect some of these images. So like if you think of memories from your past. So I say, you know, tell me something from 20 years ago. You're not just going to tell me some mundane fact about what color car pulled in your driveway. You're, it's going to have an emotional context are going to be the first things in queue. And that's why when you see people with dementia, they can go back 50 years and talk about the, when they met their spouse and go through all the beauty of that, but they can't remember you know, where the keys are, right? And that's because the hippocampus and the amygdala are like paired together. And many times when we look at one of the, well, not all, not, this could apply to all of them, but the one particular one when we look at PTSD as one of the four horsemen, that has a lot of connection between the hippocampus, which is memory functioning, and negative emotion. And so that becomes such a locked in thing that then it starts to transfer to any stimulus that represents where that trauma was housed. So the, the two together, the memory centers and the amygdala, was an interesting study where they looked at people with memory problems and this physician would come in the room and he would have a hand buzzer, you know, like those little trick hand buzzers. And with some patients, he would use, when he'd shake his hand, he said, I'm Dr. Smith and shake their hand and there would be like a a buzz, right? Which created emotional response, like a excitement or scared or whatever. And then other patients, I'm Dr. Smith. Well, guess which group always remembered the doctor's name of these memory patients? It was always the one where there was this extra emotional stimulus of this little buzzer that happened at the same time. So it's very interesting. And there's also another whole issue with our sleep cycles and memory and the amygdala and hippocampus that if we're using things to sedate us when we sleep, 
that's going to impact our memory function because we need to have the amygdala and the hippocampus both working together when we're sleeping. And that's why people who take long-term sleep meds will experience memory issues because they don't have this emotional tie that happens during REM sleep. But that's for another podcast, that part. But you just made me think of something that now I want to ask you a question, a little bit of a sidebar maybe, but I want to ask you a question as a neuropsychologist, right? So you were talking there and I was thinking, okay, so what you're saying is it's significant memories that trigger these things. And so we remember the significant things. So we remember the car accident I was in or the bullets flying over my head when I was in the war, or we remember the day we met our spouse or whatever, those, those significant things. And then those become sort of patterned into our neural pathways, right? Okay, so here's the question I have. As a psychologist, then when you're doing therapy with somebody and you say, tell me about your memories, and they remember something that seems innocuous. Like, I remember the time I got this popsicle when I was eight years old. And you're like, well, that doesn't seem like a significant memory. But now, I guess my question to you is, is that kind of part of therapy, uncovering why do you remember the popsicle? Because there must have been some significance to it. I mean, you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because we've mentioned this before, but the brain is always in a constant state of learning, which means it's always solving problems. If I walk outside and it's cold, my brain has a problem that it needs to solve. And so it's going to change my blood flow. It's going to change the pores on my skin. And it's going to thermoregulate in a way that I can manage that it's cold outside because I'm not a reptile, right? I'm a warm-blooded creature. So it's always adapting and it's always learning. It's not just doing that with the physical environment, but it's also doing that with the emotional, psychological environment. And the, particularly in relationships, I, I lean a lot into interpersonal components of psychological functioning. So if there's something that's unchecked, like, there's not an answer to that problem, okay? Like, why did they not have the red popsicle when I wanted, wanted the red one and instead I got the blue one, okay? In a sense, there's this question that has been started that the brain will continue to hold in cue, even if it moves on to something else, and three days later, it's still asking itself, why didn't I get the popsicle I wanted, right? Well, that can have with it there could be some other things that get layered on that. But then through life, something else happens, okay, that you expected one thing, but then this other thing happens. So you've now created this, what's referred to as a cyclical maladaptive pattern where the content is different, but the same scenario is playing over in the emotional. And my brain is trying to figure out why does that happen? Why when I do the right thing, does my parent yell at me? And then I now have this relationship as a teenager where I did the right thing and then this person treated me this way. Then I might even go on in life to actually create that same scenario with my boss in an unconscious way so that I can try to go back and resolve why this person was so abusive to me. And we, in a sense, because of the unresolved problem, we keep trying to play it out to the point that we unconsciously might create these same problems. And we're wondering like, why am I in this abusive relationship? Because your unconscious is trying to like solve this pattern. And then that can become dominant 
in my overall emotional processing. Now, every little thing kind of mirrors that, you know, the light isn't green when it needs to, oh, the light's out to get me, right? Or I didn't win the lottery. See, there's something else, right? So we start to play the scenario from that early memory. And there's a child psychologist many, many years ago that his whole theory was everything started with the first memory in the brain. So the client would come in, tell me your earliest memories. And he would get like three or four of these. And that's all therapy was built on. Back when you would do therapy for years, he didn't really care about what was going on now, what was going on 10 years ago, but he would take the first three or four earliest memories and he'd just keep working those over and over again. That's interesting. It's like my mind opens a file. Mm -hmm. And then for the rest of my life, I keep putting similar uh, incidents into that file. So the time the ice cream truck came and I ran out with my nickel when I was a little kid or whatever, and they didn't have the right color popsicle, I opened a file of my disappointment file. Right. And then every other time I was disappointed in life, I keep, you know, dropping things in the disappointment file. But now 50 years later, it all started the first one. So that's like the, the, the paper at the top of the file. And so everything becomes sort of filed behind that. That kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And it's interesting. I know we don't have many people out there that are budding therapists, but I'll explain how this works in therapy is what you're constantly looking for is for these themes to act out in your relationship with the client. So I'm always looking for in therapy, like what kind of pattern am I getting sucked into that's I'm just me. I'm Tim and this is just Bill, right? Right. But Bill can't stop from keeping the file open. And if I can create a blank screen, hence, you know, Freud, he would sit behind the patient so that they wouldn't like project onto even his own person something. He wanted them to project out into space so that he could find these unopened files. But in interpersonal type therapy, I would just want to interact with Bill until I sense, hmm, that's something that's wide open that he's projecting onto me, and it's not me. It's an unopened file. So then what happens for success, hopefully in therapy, is I, I can identify that, and instead of react the same way that dad did, teacher did, girlfriend did, boss did, who just got kind of pulled into this negative cycle and created more negativity, Can I pick up that cycle in therapy and then provide what's called a corrective emotional experience where I reverse this so that instead of that, I didn't get the blue popsicle or the red popsicle. I can't remember where we started (laughs) with that. All of a sudden, he does have the red popsicle in a different way in his relationship with me so that we can... He didn't disappoint me or uh, there's not disappointment there. We're just two people trying to solve these problems. And we try to unlock that to stop that cyclical maladaptive pattern from being rehearsed over and over and over again. So it becomes how, in some sense, right? Like maybe a frame that I project or I organize reality around. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of incidents that are significant, maybe either positively or negative, I then keep trying to organize my life around those kinds of incidents and sort of recreating them both for the, for good and, and for bad, right? Now let's bring the ANS back into yeah. that. So 
let's go back to our analogy and I go out there. I used to like the bomb pops. So, yeah, all know, the different colors. Yeah, 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 look at you. Yeah, see, well, then, yeah, so why, it wasn't why just we were, red, no, red or blue. No, no, you got the white, red, I want red, the whole blue, thing. And boy, that's right, you know. <laughs> Doc's going Doc's gonna to shrink my head oh, here boy. and figure out that my whole life I'm trying to get it all. <laughs> so, you know, you come out there, you hear the ice cream truck coming, you run out there, you don't get the bomb pop or whatever it is, right? And your amygdala or whatever floods your system with adrenaline or whatever, there's a, there's a physiological response that comes with that, right? Like you feel a sense of disappointment yeah. or sadness. There was an adrenaline rush when you heard the truck coming and you ran down there with your dime or your quarter or whatever it is. And then when it didn't happen, there's this sort of like, you know, adrenaline crash or whatever. But then now the ANS says, whenever we see something like this again, here's the protocol. Right. Right. So it like learns, like you say, it says when we have anticipation and then we have disappointment. And so then that becomes a template for the rest of your life. So now it's 20 years later, it's 30 years later, it's 40 years later, it's in your relationships, it's in your job, it's in your whatever. And when other situations come up, your autonomic nervous system says, oh, here we go again, do this again, do this again. And this is how these patterns develop that over time become, right, like you say, they almost become a chronic anxiety or mm -hmm. a chronic depression or a chronic, we'll get to substance abuse in a second because I can see how this would play into substance abuse. But is that like that? Like not only are we going to think the same thoughts, but our body is going to respond in the same ways. Yeah, where this all starts in future, in interactions after that is back to that uh, adrenaline rush, those things that are more physiological that then become kind of the domino that brings on the emotional functioning, the psychological, I must be this way. This is, you know, we have all these, you know, cognitive kind of things and then brings the behavioral. So now this is why when that happens, I kind of lose my cool or I become an aggressive driver or something like that. But that's, that's not where it all starts. I had a parent, I was working with a kid a few weeks ago where they were just asking, and I get this question all the time, like, well, he's got all this going on and he does this thing behaviorally, like, I, because he's anxious, he's doing this you know, being disrespectful or raising his voice or pushing his sister, is he still responsible for his behavior? Absolutely. <laughs> We're always, you know, so we can't just negate that, but we need to look upstream. And the reason I would say that is because the behavior, you've, you've crossed the line with that, but the real problem isn't there. The problem is what's going on way upstream. And the, the idea that you can unpack that by talking about that, I understand that, but it's not as effective as if I can go even a little bit further up into the physiological and neurological and stop that dysregulation that has no governor on it. Like if I can create a governor on that and I can teach the person to how to regulate their autonomic nervous system, to regulate this response and not just let the environment be the thing that triggers this whole ripple effect or this domino effect. That's why what we do when we regulate, when we teach autonomic nervous system regulation is the reason it's so impactful is there's no latency. There's no delay 
between when this happens neurologically or physiologically and then the subsequent behavior that happens downstream. Because that behavior, and we all know that, you know, we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we know something's going to happen. Right. And maybe it's not till three o'clock that you blow up somebody at work or your spouse or whatever. But there was something that happened earlier in your nervous system where your breathing was off, your autonomic nervous system was off, the inner beat interval in your heart was off, the PA axis wasn't firing correctly because of these signals from the amygdala that were telling the hippocampus to do something with the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the adrenal glands. And so if I just try to deal with this behavior or this emotion with, let me process what happened at three in the afternoon, right? There's such a time delay that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to create permanent change if I can't hit that thing or hit the stop button when that whole dysregulation starts happening, which could have been hours before. It could be, like people ask me sometimes, you know, Johnny's not paying it. Here's Johnny again. Poor Johnny. <laughs> uh, here's Johnny, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. And in, and in language arts, he's just a mess. He can't pay attention. He can't focus. And, you know, I don't ask so much about like what's going on in language arts, which is important. But my first question, what happened at 1 a.m.? What? That was 12 hours earlier. That's why Johnny's not focusing at 1 p.m. Because we're not creatures that just live in moments in time. We're on a continuum. And so when we're talking about trying to address the four horsemen, anxiety, depression, PTSD, substance abuse, those aren't things that are just done in that moment or that particular situation. You have to rework the autonomic nervous system because it's, the autonomic nervous system is going to do what the autonomic nervous system is meant to do, which is protect you, right? And it now thinks that every ice cream truck is dangerous or every female relationship is going to be a problem for me, right? And so it triggers all this physiological, neurological stuff that I can talk about it all day long, but if I don't regulate the autonomic nervous system and create this internal locus of control, the external is always going to be moving me left and right. Let's talk about the fourth horseman, substance abuse, for a second. Yeah. And let's keep flaying this analogy, this metaphor to death here about the ice cream truck, right? Yeah. So let me draw an alternative hypothesis, right? Instead of disappointment, let's suppose that I'm five years old or whatever, and I didn't sleep well because there's turmoil in the home or whatever, right? And I had a bad day at school. And I'm down and I'm depressed and I'm all those kinds of things that come from that. And then I hear the ice cream truck coming Mm -hmm. and I get hopeful because I'm feeling really bad. And so I run down there with my dime or whatever and I get my bomb pop. So it's gone from a nickel to a dime? I I, I can't decide how much this thing is, right? Golly, inflation (laughs) is killing this poor kid. It is. It is. (laughs) Double. It's double. Inflation is Wow. Okay. So anyway, so I get my bomb pop. And after a really bad couple of days, both emotionally and physiologically, I have a moment of euphoria. Now I want to recreate that moment of euphoria. And every time I get down, because I've, my brain, as you said, opened a file, Mm -hmm. the bomb pop file or whatever, the popsicle file. 
every time I get down, I go, you know, the one time I was really, really down or the first time I was really, really down, I got the popsicle, the bomb pop or whatever, and it made me feel better. Mm -hmm. So from now on, I'm going to have this response, this pattern response that says my brain and my body has learned when you're feeling tired and depressed, you need that popsicle. And substitute popsicle for food, for sex, for video games, Mm -hmm. for alcohol, for marijuana, whatever it is, right? Thrill-seeking, you know, right? Base jumping off the cliff, whatever. I need more of that. Is that kind of how you get into this addictive pattern? Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's a great example of how this works is, again, it's, it's not so much the bomb pop or the fact that you felt a certain way. It's that your autonomic nervous system is trying to find a way to move the needle. Okay, so it's, it's out of balance. So the autonomic nervous system is constantly interacting with the environment and it can go super, super fast. It can go super, super slow when we recover and sleep. And then there's like this ideal space where it's in perfect rhythm. And that's what it really longs for, okay? So if, let's take a little bit of reverse, let's say the person's not depressed, but which is a subset of anxiety over time, but let's just go initially with they're anxious, okay? So if they're anxious, and long-term anxiety will cause the depression, but if they're initially anxious, they, the nervous system is saying, what will slow me down? So think of speeds. Let's say from zero to 30 miles an hour. Well, we have a zero to 30 frequencies in our brain and these frequencies do different things. And zero to 12 is kind of the slow stuff. 12 to 20 is like the sweet spot where we could just go all day long. It's very reinforcing. And then 20 to 30 is like super, super fast. Okay. So If I'm stuck in this fast state, I'm anxious, I'm worked up, right? If I introduce something that slows that down, and a great example is marijuana, okay? Marijuana automatically produces 8 to 10 hertz or 8 to 10 miles per hour, in a sense, in the brain, that chemical. So the question is why... Not so much, why am I smoking the marijuana, but what is the marijuana doing to my ANS that becomes such a rewarding thing that I become addicted to it? So if it produces 8 to 10, but I'm stuck in 27 to 28 because I'm so anxious, worked up, that becomes such a positive reinforcement for me. Like, wow, I don't even have to think, do, solve. I just use some marijuana and all of a sudden I'm in this calm state. And so it's at the core. And again, this is the latency thing. Like I can do all kinds of things to stop the marijuana use, but I need to go upstream to say, wait a minute, what's going on in the nervous system that is making that person want that? They want that because they need to slow down the anxiety, the stress, right? I mean, I see this pro sports all the time, you know, is these guys under, you know, significant amount of stress that they put on themselves. Yes, it's stressful, but it's not life and death. And that becomes so continuous that they just learn that the only way I can turn this button off is to use marijuana, right? But what are they trying to do? They're trying to slow down that system, right? Alcohol works the same way. 
Okay. The problem with the alcohol is it's a toxic substance. So then a few hours later, you're going to have a withdrawal from that. Hence the hangover and those kind of things because your body needs to get rid of it. So it kind of creates the down, right? but then it creates the up again, yeah. which makes it such a confusing substance. But you reach for that bottle because you're trying to, you're trying to do something to regulate the autonomic nervous system. And I would stretch that further out to say, we're always trying to do things to regulate our autonomic nervous system, good and bad. You know, this, it, it, it's interesting because you've worked with people clinically for 30-something years, but just in my experience of working with people or friends or colleagues who struggle with addiction, who've been through 12-step programs mm -hmm. or whatever, but the observation I have of even my good friends is that they substitute one thing for the other. So it's like I've, I've been yes. to the AA yeah. or NA or whatever, and I have my coin and I'm five years sober, 10 years sober, 15 years sober, but now they're really into something else. Yes. So now they've moved on to online day trading or they're, they're really into eating sweets or they're really into video games because it always seems like they've shifted from one thing to the next. I had one friend who actually admitted once, he goes, I am addicted to anything that makes me feel better. Right. And so I gave up the drugs and alcohol, but now I have to have video games and I do day trading and I do this and I do that, right? So it's that the body, you say the ANS is always trying to find that compensation. Right. And it's looking for an external, in these instances, it's looking for external regulation or if you're using a substance it's using like a synthetic regulator versus the internal regulator that it can do with itself so the, the greatest impact on the brain is itself not these external things but that takes time that's a learned learned behavior it's a shift it's teaching the autonomic nervous system how to regulate. So when you look at one of the four horsemen, substance abuse, and you're doing 12-step, which is great, these other, you know, talk kind of therapies, sometimes different substances will be used to try to counteract that. But those are all downstream, right? They're, they're not addressing the autonomic nervous system dysregulation that's always going to be hunting for the next thing to regulate itself. Right. And if we're not teaching those individuals how to self-regulate, how do I regulate, not just telling myself, you know, a certain thought over and over again, but literally changing what my autonomic nervous system does when it hear, hears an ice cream truck. Instead of that ice cream truck triggering a fast response in my brain or too slow of a response in my brain, and now I've got to find something to deal with that. I'm able to say, you can bring 20 ice cream trucks down the street and I'm internally controlling my autonomic nervous system. And that's, that's the big thing with the, one of the other ones, which is PTSD, okay? Is the problem with PTSD is you're lever in this situation, you're leveraging the natural self-preservation of our nervous system, that it'll do anything to protect itself. So if it feels like it's in danger, It'll sleep very light with one eye open in a sense, right? It'll become hypervigilant to every piece of stimuli. If I am in a foxhole and there are bullets going over my head, I'm not like sitting there saying, wow, 
this is really cool. I'm going to take a nap right now because I just feel so relaxed. I'm not, I'm not in a downshift. I'm in an upshift of crisis and I'm trying to protect myself with that up, upshift. Yeah, but something just occurred to me because you know we've talked so much in the past about sleep. Right. So in my analogy with the ice cream truck, I said, okay, if I hadn't slept well next last couple of days as a little kid, the five-year-old, then that ice cream truck becomes real significant for me. Big time. But now I'm thinking about the guy in the foxhole because is it just the bullets going over your head or is it the fact that, that soldiers in foxholes probably haven't slept well for the last four or five days prior to that? So they're already in this sleep-deprived state, which conditions them or makes them more sensitive to those dangers. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I would say that the autonomic nervous system's upregulation, so we can't sleep between these zero and 30 frequencies unless we go down to zero and four hertz, you know, in those lower frequencies. So the moment the external stressor happens, if my autonomic nervous system isn't strong enough, it will go into the fast state, which then starts the inability to go down into the slow state to sleep, which then now you've got sleep deprivation, which is your, your recovery process, which is exacerbating your ability to bring those brainwaves under control. So you kind of have a, a chicken and the egg thing, but really it starts, the sleep deprivation always starts with the nervous system running too fast. Right. And I don't want to, you know, spend too much time on the soldier in the foxhole thing, but it seems interesting to me. So what I'm saying is in the the three or four days leading up to the bullets flying over your head, the soldier has been walking, traveling, there's all these things. So he hasn't slept well already in the three or four days prior to that because of the demands of, you know, digging his foxhole and parachuting out into the mm-hmm. behind it, all that stuff. So by the time that the enemy starts shooting at him, he's already in a sleep deprived state, right? And the same thing might be said for a guy in a business situation or anything else. Like I haven't slept well in three or four days. So then when the meeting goes sideways, right, that becomes even harder for him to process or regulate right. because he's already sort of vulnerable. So Back to our thing about regulating the ANS, if you can fix the sleep first, which I know is something that you talk about a lot, if we can start addressing those upstream things like sleep and all of this, then we become more, our key word, resilient, Resilient. (laughs) right? So then you go, okay, well, a bullet did fly over my head, but that's not necessarily, because not every soldier that was there ended up with PTSD. Not every guy who was in a bad meeting or got fired ended up with PTSD. But if you're already in a vulnerable state, your resilience is low, which makes you much more susceptible to that becoming a significant event for you. Absolutely. I mean, one of my best friends did three tours in Iraq as a medical corpsman. I mean, he saw everything that you can imagine. And I would say he's one of the healthiest people I know, not just physically, but mentally. But I also know him from high school and he was able to always find some way to be happy he was calm you know and you know he's of all my friends he's like one of the funniest ones you know in the group sorry you know no. rodney and Day- rodney and tim for not <laughs> saying that you two are funny but but he was always known that way so then you think well 
What did he go into this foxhole situation with? I mean, this wasn't just a couple of days. I mean, he spent years doing this stuff, you know, seeing individuals where he had to piece them back together, you know, just stuff we would never imagine. He went in with an autonomic nervous system that he had developed internal mechanisms of how to uh, regulate it. And you could see it in his personality. Like he'd find some way to shift that external situation with his humor, his perspective on life, his just overall joy, right? So everybody goes into that situation with a different predisposition. You know, the ice cream truck goes down the street and there's 20 kids on the street and each kid responds differently to the ice cream truck. The, the men and women in the foxholes, they all experience that stress differently. What, what happens in that PTSD moment where the person does develop PTSD is the brain goes into such a self-protective mechanism. Don't sleep. Stay hypervigilant. Every little sound, like be on point. You'd, your life literally depends on you going as fast as you can with your autonomic nervous system to the point that don't sleep, okay? So then you come back home and there's no longer the bullets coming over, but your autonomic nervous system in a way to protect you from dying is now kicking this thing in. And what's happening physiologically is these mechanisms that you talked about earlier, these, these anatomical things in the brain, they light up with electrical current, which triggers the hypothalamus to release a chemical to the pituitary gland, which then releases a chemical to the adrenal gland. And this thing that we call the HPA axis has now got in a, into a continuous flow of alertness and releasing adrenaline, alertness. And so everybody out there that's trying to deal with PTSD is like, how can we shut down the HPA axis chemically? Okay, well, you, you can't, you don't want to stop it chemically because guess what? There's something's going to happen that is a real danger. Like you're going to be driving the car and you need to kick in your HPA axis because of an event. You can't just cut off the HPA axis. You have to go and retrain the brain to not fire that way. So let's talk about that retraining and that sort of proactivity. When you talk about the soldiers, one of the things that strikes me is when you listen to the elite soldiers, your SEALs, your Delta Force, your Rangers, one of the things they'll always say, in fact, one of the things they look for in selection of those guys is that one of the principles is sleep whenever you can sleep and eat whenever you can eat, mm -hmm. right? So they're proactively going, I don't know when bullets might start flying, but whenever I can be sleeping, I'm sleeping. Whenever I can eat, I'm eating so that my resilience is higher for those moments. Whereas the less experienced guys have not slept and have not ate, not sort of proactively, and their resilience is lower. So that brings us a little bit to the things that we do with Inner Armor, Royer Neuroscience, which is it's a proactive program where you are regulating the ANS through things, all the things that we do, including improving sleep and all of these things so that your resilience threshold is higher, right? And then when all of these kinds of things come, you're less vulnerable to those opening a file in your brain that's going to haunt you for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I refer to it uh, as answer, A-N-S-R. It is the answer, autonomic nervous system regulation. That is where all the four horsemen came from. 
They all come from autonomic nervous system dysregulation. And we, if we regulate way upstream, deep in the recesses of the brain, we regulate that. Not only can we deal with the four horsemen and raise the floor, but we can even go through the ceiling because the system will start to function in, a, in an optimized way that actually becomes very innovative, creative. These things are, again, slower brainwave activity. They're not fast brainwave activity. That's why when you're anxious, it's hard to be creative. And your body becomes more healthy. You're able to anchor into sleep in good ways. So anchoring requires for the brain to slow down. And we can't do that if the brain is running fast. So it's upstream at autonomic nervous system regulation. And that's that should be across the board for everybody. We have a program that you guys heard a few weeks ago on the podcast in these elementary schools. We need to be teaching first, second, third graders how to regulate their autonomic nervous system. We need to teach parents how to help their children regulate their autonomic nervous system. We do that, the ripple effect to what's going to happen to the force horse, horsemen is we can decrease their power. We can decrease their prevalence. But if we're not going upstream and working at autonomic nervous system regulation before these things happen, it makes it much more difficult to work our way backwards. We can still get there. And I think every substance abuse center needs some form of autonomic nervous system regulation. Doesn't need to be inner armor. Doesn't need to be. But part of us solving the tsunami of mental health that's overtaking us and all we have is an umbrella to stop it is going to have to require something that's upstream in the autonomic nervous system regulation. What a great, great segue into the next conversation or the next two conversations we're going to have sitting out here on the patio. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this one. We're going to talk next in the next couple of episodes about how people get help and the complexity of navigating the system, not the system, not the nervous system, but the, the medical system and the insurance systems to try to get help. And it's really hard because when someone becomes aware that they need help, what do they have to do to get it? Absolutely. I want to talk about that next. And then we're going to talk about a vision that you have for maybe proactively deploying this kind of answer training into vulnerable populations. Absolutely. So stick with us for the next couple of episodes as we sit out here uh, on the patio and talk about uh, mental health, the four horsemen, auto, the autonomic nervous system, and live our and best. And bomb pops. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. <laughs>